Freebies are a good marketing strategy. Do they catch you? Do they grab your attention? Do they sway your preferences towards the brand or the item of the freebie? This slide came up on the screen before the service started and there are a few people here who went, I didn't realise the effect that it would have that uh, some of the kids running around who could read thought we were handing out free ice cream this morning. But I can tell you about free ice cream. Uh, One of our local supermarkets hands out free ice cream cones to kids. Some of you have probably uh, come across it in a suburb uh, just over there. But here's the thing, a couple of weeks ago I went to buy groceries from the supermarket along the corridor and I had a a trolley full of groceries in the trolley branded with the other supermarket and the boys said, can we go and get a free ice cream from the other supermarket? Well, of course, they're free. But as I go in with this trolley already loaded up with all the groceries that I needed and some things that I didn't need, I then felt like I had to buy more stuff in the new supermarket. So if anyone wants to try out the new $2 white wine uh, that's in this supermarket, yeah, I've got a couple of those uh, and other useless things as well. It's still in the fridge. Um, probably use it to water the garden or something. You see, it gets me in. I feel like I now have to have a loyalty to that brand. I can't just take the freebie for nothing. Now, one of my mates who went off to university up in Queensland he found a voucher for a freebie. We could go in and get one per person per day from that particular place. Well, he came up with a strategy of travelling all over southeast Queensland, collecting these vouchers and redeeming them so that he had the biggest stockpile of toilet paper I think anyone has ever seen. I even googled toilet paper hoarding last night and not of any of the images on, fa- on um, social media came close to what this guy managed to achieve. His, his uh, housemate came home and just couldn't believe it. There were toilet papers rolls stuffed everywhere through the house, under the kitchen sink, on the bookshelves. He'd even built some extra shelves. He'd built these hooks that would hang from the roof and suspend them there. The spare room that they were hoping to rent out to another student was now completely full of toilet paper, but he'd worked out that the saving in toilet paper was worth more dollars than renting out the spare room. Did it sway him to be loyal to that particular brand? I was tempted to reach out to him this week and say, hey, He's still using that brand? Uh, He's probably not, although he could well be, because when they moved house, they had to get a truck just to move his TP. (laughs) Freebies are a good marketing strategy. Now, in John 6, many people go after Jesus because of something that he offers. But we see that they don't belong to him. Thousands will gobble up what he offers but will not digest who he is. They're captivated by the free food but they don't sign up in loyalty with Jesus. Now here in chapter 6, there's a fork in the road. A fork in the road for Jesus' disciples and for us as readers as John's Gospel. Here's the big questions. Are we hanging with Jesus because he makes life better? Or are we hanging with Jesus because he is our life? 
John is writing so that we might believe to life. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ Messiah, that we might believe that he is the Son of God and by believing in him we have life. Life that is good, life that goes on forever and life that starts now. Now today we're coming to the end of part one in our series through John's Gospel. And as we reach this mini-end, I want to be very clear with us today about the fork in the road. As we engage with Easter over the next seven days, it is my hope, prayer, that we will be challenged again, or perhaps for the first time, challenged about the place that Jesus has in our lives One of the most memorable miracles of Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Alternative readings that are out there that have been around for years dismiss the miracle with suggestions like, well, when the little boy took out his small lunch, it inspired others to get out their lunch. Now, John's focus here is not on the miraculous though it certainly is miraculous. John's focus is on the sign. Now we read that this event takes place in the wilderness, outside the cities, on the edge of Jerusalem. It's in the wilderness and it's at the time of the Passover that Jesus miraculously feeds this great crowd with just five loaves and two fish. Here we see that Jesus is like Moses. Moses, the Old Testament leader in Exodus, leading God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. That all happened in the shadow of the Passover, the festival, the celebration that God had given to remember the Exodus from Egypt when he passed over his people in bringing judgment and hardship on the Egyptians. Now, while they were in the wilderness, manna, a wafer-like thing that they called bread from heaven, was provided to sustain God's people when they had nothing to eat. Jesus here is like Moses. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promised Moses and promised the Israelites that he would send a prophet in the future who would be like Moses. This is what God says. I will raise up for them, the Israelites, I'll raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. Moses expects, the Israelites expect, the Jewish people of Jesus' day expect that a prophet will come who will be like Moses. Here in the wilderness, feeding the 5,000, could this guy, could Jesus be the prophet? Well, the crowd is certainly stirred by what Jesus does. See in verse 14? After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The crowd is certainly stirred, by what Jesus does, Jesus could have had a significant following. They want to make him king. 
but he withdraws. He pulls away. He goes away. Because this is not his path to kingship and true belief. Immediately, John tells us about another memorable miracle, walking on the water. Again, you can come across alternative readings that try to dismiss the miracle. Perhaps the disciples had an illusion that Jesus was walking on the water, but really is walking along a sandbar or in the shallow waters nearby. Perhaps they were just disoriented in the storm. Again, John's focus is not on the miraculous, though what happens here certainly is miraculous. John's focus is on the claim, the claim of who Jesus says he is. And the thing that Jesus says, verses 16 to 24, what Jesus says is right in the middle of this piece of narrative. You've got a red letter Bible like mine, although my eyes are fading and can hardly see the red anymore. The red sits right in the middle, Jesus' claim. This event, they're on a lake, it's dark, it's windy, waves are being blown up, the disciples are scared, they're in danger and then here comes Jesus. He turns up walking on the water and he leads them to safety. They find that they're immediately and safe at the other side. Again, he's just like Moses. Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted and Moses led them safely on dry ground through the Red Sea to the other side to escape from the Egyptians. Again, people will try to dismiss uh, that miracle. Oh, it was, it was oh, uh, j- just shallow water and they got through. But what about the whole Egyptian army being drowned in whatever they walked through? Jesus again is like Moses, but Jesus turns it up a notch with this claim as he gets to the disciples, as he's getting into the boat, he says, it is I. He's saying more than, hi, it's Jesus here. He's making a deliberate claim to be the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Remember when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and told him that he was going to appoint Moses to be the leader of the people who would take them out of Egypt, who would lead them to the promised land and Moses goes, who are you? And God says, I am. Right here in the middle of this lake, in the middle of the wind and the waves, as the disciples are petrified, Jesus turns up looking like Moses but says, I am. Now this is what John wants you and I to know. This is why he has written, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now the crowd that was there, they get a taste of it. The disciples, they see and hear Jesus claim to be God. Will they believe? Let's have a look in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You were looking for me, not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because all the vouchers for the free stuff. Because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, 
The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Though Jesus feeds the crowd with bread, he points to what they really need. They really need the bread that endures to eternal life. And he goes on in this long speech to explain that this bread is Jesus himself. Jesus is the bread of life. You can't miss it here, but let's look at a couple of the verses here that mention it. Uh, First of all, verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, can't miss it here, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Verse 41, as people were grumbling, perhaps they weren't getting it. He drives it home. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the one who gives himself, who offers himself to give them bread that endures to eternal life. And what they're supposed to do with this bread, it's a confronting image, they're supposed to eat it. Verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. That wasn't eternal life bread. Verse 50, But here is the bread, me, that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. At this, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Wow! That's a pretty confronting image, isn't it? Like Christians were attacked in the first century and accused of cannibalism over verses like this. It's a really confronting image that Jesus uses. But that's not strange to Jesus. Jesus uses all kinds of different confronting images uh, to make his point. He's saying eating his flesh and drinking his blood, this is belief. What he's saying is, you don't just nibble around the edges with Jesus. It's not like a tasting plate experience where you have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's an everyday, all-you-can-eat, satisfying banquet. It's a whole of life taking on of Jesus. You see, with Jesus, when Jesus is everything then Jesus is enough. This is what the crowd experienced with the bread and the fish. Jesus wants his disciples to know this, to know this life that comes through belief in him. 
So don't get so hung up on the image of chewing on Jesus' flesh and slurping the blood. In the original language, the image is even more confronting because the chewing word is kind of a (laughs) kind of word, not a... It's a big image, but don't get so hung up on that that we miss what it leads to. It leads to life. It leads to eternal life. Let's look through some of the verses again, starting at verse 33. The bread of God is he who comes from, down from heaven, and what does he do? He gives life to the world. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Verse 47. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Verse 50. Here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up at the last day. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. With Jesus, when Jesus is everything, Jesus is enough. Or is it? What did we see happen in verses 60 and following? On hearing this, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? If you're feeling this morning like this is hard, if you're feeling like it's hard to get your head around, if you feel like it's hard to accept, you're in the company of Jesus' disciples. Who can accept this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Here, many turn back. We've got the story the historical story of Jesus' life and the beginning of his ministry across the first six chapters of John's Gospel where people are being drawn to Jesus, where people are interested in Jesus, where people are intrigued in Jesus, where crowds are coming after him, where they're moving further and further closer into Jesus and here many turn back. They've gobbled up what Jesus had to offer but they can't digest who he is. They're hanging around with Jesus in the hope that he will make their life better. They're they're nibbling with Jesus, but they will not and they cannot bring themselves to believe. Could I be one of these disciples? Can I be one of these ones who's been attracted to Jesus, drawn in by the freebies, drawn in the hope that my life might get a little bit better? 
and then one day turn away? I've seen people do this in my family, amongst my friends, people that I've done ministry alongside, men and women who I looked up to as as leaders and, and friends in ministry, guys I went to Bible college with, turn back. And I ask myself, is my belief genuine? Will it last? Could something come up in my life? Could something happen that will make me turn back? We've all thought about it. So I want to show you the comfort and the challenge that is here for us in these verses. First of all, the comfort. These verses, while they're hard to accept, hard to digest, right through them, are promises of Jesus that His Father, our God, the sovereign God who made heaven and earth and sustains it, who knows every single one of us, who knows what's in every corner of our hearts, who knows the future and everything, Jesus promises that His Father and our Father will draw and keep us. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never draw away. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. Verse 65, here's the promise. This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Here's the comfort for us, the promise of Jesus that God is the one who is sovereignly drawing us to himself and keeping us. There's the promise, the comfort and now here's the challenge, the challenge for us in this world, day by day, moment by moment, our challenge is to keep responding in belief to be like the 12 that we haven't yet read at the end of these verses. Verse 67, Jesus asked the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We have no idea how much of that that Simon Peter understood, but from what he could see in front of him, what he knew of Jesus, the evidence that was there, where else am I going to go? When Jesus is everything, Jesus is enough. Are you hanging with Jesus because he makes life a little bit better? Are you hanging in there with Jesus in the hope that he's going to give you things that will make life better? Or are you following Jesus because he is your life? 